You can be seated, and if you have children, you can dismiss those kiddos to children's ministry. And if you'd open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 4, we're going to begin reading here in a moment in verse 23. So Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. I want you to imagine that your dad is a small business owner, and he's hiring. And uh, you have a friend who needs a job, and you think your friend would be really good for this job, and so... You, 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 bring this, you take this friend to coffee and you say, listen, you know, I'm going to get you in the door. I'm going to get you the interview with my dad. But let me tell you a little bit about my dad. Let me give you a, a, a quick download on his personality, on what he likes, on what he doesn't like, and so on and so forth. Because I want to give you the best shot not only to get the job, but then also to be promoted once you do get the job. Well, I want you to think about that in terms of what would you say to someone who is who is thinking about entering into a relationship with God or someone who has entered into a relationship with God and um, you're trying to give them the quick download on, well, this is who God is. This is what he likes. This is what he doesn't like and so on and so forth. You know, what would be the bare bones kind of communication you would give to someone to help them to understand the personality of God, the character of God? I think you might start by saying, okay, I've been walking with God for a while, and there's all sorts of things we could talk about, but let me give you, like, ground level, one thing about God. What he likes, what he doesn't like. God really, really hates pride. He's really against pride. Like, he hunts it down. He looks for it and seeks to ruin it. God hates pride, and God loves humility. Like that might be, I think, if you were trying to explain the personality of God, what he likes, what he doesn't like, you might start with, you know, James, right? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that one nugget of information might explain a great deal of God's behavior in a a variety of situations and circumstances. This motivation that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble might be one way to sum up a lot of God's personality in a simple statement. Or Proverbs three, thirty-three: The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. You might just say, listen, if I'm going to explain all of this to you in as quick, as poss- quick a way as possible, God is really against pride. He's really against it. And he's really for humility. And there could be other places that you could point to in the scriptures to to show this, of course. Now that's relevant to our time in Acts 4 for a couple reasons. First of all, I think it goes a long way to explaining why God consistently blesses prayer. Ever think about that? Like, why is prayer such a big deal? Why does prayer seem throughout scripture to, to be the thing that leads to the big thing? Why is prayer so consistently upheld as this really big deal? Well, I'm not saying it's not possible to be prideful in prayer. It's just, it's sort of like trying to build a fire in a rainstorm. Like you could conceivably become prideful in prayer. Um, I'm reminded of the Pharisees prayer in the, toward the end of Luke where he, I guess he prays. Maybe he doesn't even pray. He, He basically thanks God that he's not bad. Is that a prayer? I don't know. Anyway, I think it's technically possible that you could become uh, prideful in prayer, but it, it would be like 
technically possible in the same way that it's technically possible to build a fire, to start a fire in a rainstorm. Let me say it this way. It is possible for you to be prideful and have a prayer life. But if you don't have a prayer life, you're prideful. Like, the act of prayer itself is an act of humility. It's, it's an act of deference. It's an act of reverence. And so, you know, if you were to say, you know, one of the basic things to think about with God's character is he hates pride, he loves humility, and then you would say, um, that might explain why God is so pro-prayer, you know, why he's so for prayer, because it is this humble action in and of itself. And it would probably, uh, it also has a second thing to do with our text. Disobedience is prideful, right? God tells you to do something, you don't do it. That's, that's, that's an action of pride. Um, obedience is humble. God tells you to do something and you say, you have the right to tell me what to do. You have the wisdom to know what the right thing to do is. So I'm going to obey. So obedience is prideful and disobedience is, uh, or obe- obedience is humble and disobedience is prideful. And that ties in with our text, too, because what we see in Acts chapter 4, verse 23, is a group of people praying. That's a humble thing to do. And they're praying for what? They're praying for the power to obey, which is also a really humble thing to do. So I think you see built into this passage that we're about to read this essential core of God's character and that he opposes the proud, but gives and is eager to give grace to the humble. So if you've got your Bibles open, uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 23, let me read that right now. When they were released, speaking of John and Peter after their uh, trial, I guess you could say, in front of uh, the elders and chief priests, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, There were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word with boldness. Today we're going to talk about corporate prayer. We're going to talk about the incredible privilege that we often take for granted, and that privilege is that we have the opportunity to gather in the name of Jesus, and lift our voices together to the sovereign God of the universe and pray that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I am always jealous to deprogram certain, what I would consider to be toxic uh, tendencies in our understanding of prayer. 
I would not, I would, I'm hesitant to use the language I'm about to use, but I look back on my childhood and my teen years and my young, my young man years and, and what I was taught about prayer. And I think that at least at some level, there was a toxicity and an elitism in what was communicated to me about prayer. And I think that can just naturally happen when someone who's really good at something talks to people who aren't. I think that can just naturally happen. So I'm not ascribing motives per se. But what I have found over the years is that people who should have every reason to pray with joy, to pray frequently, and to enjoy prayer have these, um, these, these underlying beliefs that limit their enthusiasm to prayer. So kind of one of the main things I talk about when I talk about prayer is to, is to try to correct some of those underlying um, bad programming code uh, that, that causes us to be hesitant or less joyful in prayer than we could be. And, and so that's what I want to see to show you today in this text because we see in this text some, some paradigm shifts compared to what we normally think of when we talk about corporate prayer. And I'm going to talk about four of those today. And the first one, so it's just four paradigm shifts for corporate prayer. And, and the first one is this, fast twitch over slow twitch. Now, I'm going to use the word over in a number of these points. I don't think you should walk away with me saying, I'm telling you one is definitely better than the other. I'm just telling you that a point of emphasis has been lacking, and I'm trying to bring a point of emphasis back. So what do I mean by fast twitch over slow twitch? Well, we're re-watching the Lord of the Rings movies right now, and there's a moment when Gimli, the dwarf, says, we dwarves are natural sprinters, very dangerous over short distances. So people, the human body, have two kinds of skeletal muscle fibers. There's slow twitch and there's fast twitch. And slow twitch muscles help you do long endurance, right? And fast twitch have a lot to do with bursts of speed, sprinting, reflexes, and so forth. Now, when it comes to prayer, for whatever reason, endurance prayers get all the attention. We tend, when we elevate or celebrate a prayer life, tend to talk about time in prayer and tend to talk about people who pray for extended periods of time. That tends to be, so we tend to be marathon, uh, we tend to be marathon biased. We tend to be endurance biased when we think about prayer. But there's a whole other part of prayer that isn't the the long twitch, of which there's nothing wrong, of course. But there's a whole other element to prayer, and that's the fast twitch prayer. And what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is, look at verse 23 again. So it says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices. Reaction time. That's what I'm talking about. Most of our elevation and celebration of prayer tends to be, well, how long did you pray this week? Or how long did you pray when you just prayed? What I think needs to be brought back into balance is this appreciation for reflexivity in prayer. The tendency to immediately respond to whatever stimuli is hitting you in prayer. This sort of fast-twitch, reactionary Something has happened. I'm going to do the one thing that is the most important thing right now. I'm going to pray. 
So I want you to begin, as we talk about these paradigm shifts, I would love it, for instance, if you walked out of here and you begin to ask yourself this question, how many times did I pray today? Right? I think that's a better question, especially as we're learning prayer and we're learning a lifestyle of prayer. I think the better question is, how many times did I pray today, rather than how long or what is the total time I spent in prayer. What I'd love, for, love to see us do is what Psalm fifty fifteen prescribes when God says, call upon me in the day of trouble. Call upon me that day. Call upon me immediately and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Now we're all familiar with, with Paul's uh, command to pray without ceasing, to pray at all times. And all of us have probably read that and thought, well, what does that look like practically? And how does that happen? I want to suggest that what he's talking about there is this fast twitch, reflexive, responding in the moment in prayer. So think about it this way. Throughout your day, certain things will please you, unless you're just a grumpy Gus. But throughout your day, certain things will please you. What do you do in the moment when something pleases you? Whether it's the warmth of the sun or a beautiful tree or a nice meal. What do you do? What do you do reflexively? You give thanks to God. That's the kind of prayer life we're looking for, is a reflexive response to whatever the stimuli is. And if the stimuli is, I'm happy, I'm thankful, this is good. Boom, right to God. Immediate reflex. Thanking God for that. You'll encounter things throughout your day that trouble you. Again, a reflexive response to those troubles should be to lift up those concerns and laments to God in prayer. Someone comes into your mind. Boom! Immediately, I'm going to pray for this person as they enter my mind. When you think about some task you have to do later, you're thinking about what you're going to cook for dinner, you're thinking about cleaning something, or you're thinking about some chore you've got to do in the house. Immediately, just then, when you think about it, say, Lord, please bless my work when I do it, help it to go well, and also, Lord, uh, help my heart to be right, so on and so forth. So that you're constantly, constantly redirecting whatever stimulus comes in, into prayer. It's a reflexive, fast-twitch kind of prayer. At a corporate setting, this becomes a little more difficult. I think the best way to prescribe and to imagine how this takes place within our, within our relationships, within the body, is just, let's just be okay with an awkward, abrupt transition from a conversation about something to a suggestion that we pray. Let's just be okay with that. Let's just be okay with concluding a conversation and say, you know, we're all trying to get better at this reflexive prayer thing. Let's do that right now. Let's, let's just pray together. Uh, I'm so thankful that my wife does that for me. You know, uh, spiritual leadership doesn't mean that my wife can't say to me, we should pray, Right? She's not taking anything away from me by suggesting that. She's just helping me and equipping me and reminding me that we need to do this thing, that I need to, that I need to lead us in this thing. So I'm so thankful for the variety of times when Ange and I are discussing something. And as you might imagine, our, lives get, our, lives, our life gets complicated. I'm sure yours does as well. And there are lots of wires that are crossed and we can't see what to do next. And things are confusing. Maybe things are hopeless and so on and so forth. And I'm so thankful that in those times, there's this, this reflexive tendency to say, well, we should pray. 
And that's how we end our discussion about these particular things. So that's the first paradigm shift. While we often elevate and celebrate people who pray for a long time, I would love it. I would love it, love it, love it. I think the Lord would if a month from now you were able to say, you know, I am praying longer because I'm praying so many times. You know, my time in prayer is extended, but that's mostly due to the fact that I've, I've experienced this renewed energy to reflexively respond to all the various stimuli that come into my life with prayer. So that's number one. The second paradigm shift is sovereignty as a spark rather than a sprinkler. So someone asked, uh, uh, this is a, uh, you know, who knows if this really happened. Someone supposedly asked Augustine, what was God doing before he created the world? And Augustine said, preparing hell for curious souls like you. <laughs> now, yeah, I know, that, that escalated quickly. <laughs> My guess is, is that beyond the, what's just printed there, Augustine might have known the dude and might have known that that question was rooted <clears throat> in some cynical motives, some skeptical motives or, or whatever. I, I don't know. Um, I do know that the question's not illegitimate and that the Bible speaks of the question. But I also know <laughs> all too well personally that our flesh can use anything to keep us from obeying God including information, right? Our flesh can use anything to keep us from obeying God, including information. And so uh, we see that as, uh, we see that in, in discussions of God's sovereignty, right? So once you've, um, once you've sort of opened your mind to the possibility that God really is in charge of everything, everything, every leaf that falls is orchestrated in its descent, and every bit of dust is is orchestrated by God. Once you once you get this sense that God's in charge of everything, and that He always has been and always will be, and He does exactly what He wants, and He saves those whom He'll save, and and doesn't save those whom He chooses not to save. Once you start getting those sorts of thoughts, those very biblical thoughts in your head, it's very easy for your flesh to grab that information and use it as an excuse not to obey God's clear prescriptions to pray and to share the gospel with other people, right? It's very easy to take sovereignty, the sovereignty of God, and allow it to be a sprinkler that puts out the fire of your own zeal and obedience. It's very easy that the sovereignty of God can become a sprinkler on your prayers. And, and so you think, well, why would I pray? God already, God already knows everything. He's going to do what he's going to do. Why would I pray? You know, why would I share the gospel? God's already got this all figured out, so on and so forth. My guess is that when Augustine responded to that guy, Augustine was sensing that that guy's questions about the pre-eternal uh, existence of God we're rooted in the same kind of deal that we have when we use God's sovereignty as an excuse not to do that which he so clearly calls us to do. And that's important to consider because in this particular text, as in many others and many other moments, high moments in church history, we see that the sovereignty of God 
is as strongly grasped here by these people as anybody can grasp it. They get it. They know it. They understand it. They say that God is sovereign over creation in verse 24. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They say that God is sovereign over history in verse 25. Who through the mouth of our father, uh, who, who the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. They, they believe that God is so sovereign that he can speak through someone a thousand years ago who was speaking. They, they see that God is sovereign over kings and over conspiracies in verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So these guys know God's sovereignty. They're jet fuel Calvinists, you know, no, no delusion whatsoever. They strongly believe that God is over all things in control of all things, and they're not even afraid to use words like predestined. Um, They're the real deal. But look at what that knowledge prompts. It doesn't prompt fatalism. It doesn't prompt disobedience. It prompts the exact opposite. Rather than smother their prayers like a wet blanket, God's sovereignty ignites their prayers. It turns them into powerful, hot, impressive things. And here's why. It shows up in the content of their prayer. They understand that in God's sovereignty, he uses means to accomplish his purposes. He uses people and places and things and time itself like tools in his hand to build what he wants to build. It shows up in their prayer. And it shows up in a very important way and kind of a a bit of a warning to you and I. They know that God uses David's and that God uses Herod's. Right? So God uses kings that are after his own heart and God uses kings that are after their own hate. They know that God uses means. He used men like Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel to crucify Jesus. And they know then that God uses prayer and gospel proclamation in the same way that he uses people. He uses people and prayers to accomplish his sovereign purposes. And what really is hung up, and this is what I said, this is kind of a warning. What's really hung up in this, the tension of this text is a simple question. God will use you. It's simply a question of whether he will use your sin or your obedience. He will use you. C.S. Lewis said, you will certainly carry out God's purpose however you act. But it makes a difference to you whether you serve like Judas or like John. So in this passage, we see that everybody named, whether that's David or Herod, or the chief priests, everybody named in this passage is going to be used by God <clears throat> to accomplish his sovereign purposes. The question is just, what way will you be used? Will you, in obedience, pray and proclaim the gospel and be used like you used David and John? Or will you, in disobedience, 
honor your own understanding, honor your own flesh, follow after the way that seems right to you, and God will use you like he used Pilate and Judas and Herod. Right? So, so that's the second paradigm shift. God's sovereignty is a spark and not a sprinkler. Number three, third paradigm shift, warfare over wish lists. And again, let me just underline, I do not mean to say by the word over that one is better than the other, only that we want to make sure we're, having, we're bringing the thing that comes first, in this case warfare, back into its proper place. In verse 24 again, the believers lift up their voices and cry out, Sovereign Lord. The Greek we'd expect to see ain't there. The normal word for Lord is missing. The word used everywhere else in the New Testament for Lord is missing. And instead, they use an almost entirely negative word, despot. You know what a despot is, right? Like, Kim Jong-un is a despot, you know? Like, like a despot is a, is a powerful, ornery, stubborn ruler. So instead of using the normal Greek kurios there to describe the lordship of God, the sovereignty of God, they say, God, you are the sovereign despot. What's going on there? Well, there's a grittiness to this prayer. Peter and John just walked away from a trial with despots. Herod was a despot. Pilate was a despot. And the believers are saying, our God is a despot to the despots. There's a grittiness here. It shows up in their choice to quote from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 ain't a, uh, ain't a unicorn and soft serve ice cream kind of passage. It's a passage about the grittiness of God. Let me read some of Psalm 2 to you. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. You know, our prayers corporately could stand to be a little bit more militant if we want to match the corporate prayers that appear so often in Scripture, especially in the book of Psalms. Our prayers ought to be more gritty. They ought to be more concerned with the spiritual warfare that is raging all around us. They ought to be more concerned with the enemies of the gospel. They ought to speak to what we are afraid to speak to, and that is we're all scared. And our prayers need to deal with our fear. And what we're afraid of is we're afraid of the despots, the despot next door. <laughs> the despots in the political class, the despots on the school board. <laughs> like, what we're afraid of is we're afraid of people who are throwing their weight around to scare 
to scare Christians from proclaiming the gospel. And so our prayers need to be militant. Absolutely, we should bring our concerns to the Lord. Absolutely, we should bring the Lord the desires of our heart. But let's be clear. There is a time and a place for prayers which sound like battle cries. And there always has been. Uh, Number four, fourth paradigm shift. Purpose over preferences and passions. So you all know that unity is a key to the church's witness. We tend to frame unity as not fighting with one another. Right? We tend to frame unity as not fighting with one another. Fair enough. Certainly true. But the kind of unity we see in the early church has as much to do with fighting together as it does with not fighting with each other. The unity we see in the early church looks like an army. It looks like a group of people with a clear and common purpose. You know, it's, it's a lot more difficult to, to fight with each other if we're all forward-facing into the darkness, right? It's a lot more difficult to, 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 to develop fractions and fissures amongst ourselves if we all understand our common purpose. When you see in verse 24, when they heard it, they lifted their voices to God and said, and then of course, so you've got this very plural thing, right? They lifted their voices. When they heard this, they lifted their voices together and said, and then what they say is extremely singular, extremely unified. It's, it's, that, it's that kind of thing that the Trinity represents it's multiple voices one voice it's 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 this very unique kind of christian unity that is built primarily on a common purpose you know at times a local church can feel like a bunch of kittens all laying on the floor playing with their own individual barn ball of yarn and it's like, man, everybody here, you know, there, there's like 12 kittens in the room and they all care about the thing they care about. It's like, is that unity? Just because we're not fighting? Is it unity that one person listens for their favorite topic in a sermon and another person listens for their favorite topic in a sermon and so on and so forth? Is that unity? I don't think so. I don't think unity is a bunch of people being agreeable while they all embrace their particular passions. And I certainly don't think that unity is that, people embracing their particular passions and then saying that their particular passion is the purpose of the church. Right? A prayer meeting like that, where everybody's sort of just playing with their ball of yarn, it doesn't really look like what we see here. When they pray, they talk about both passions and preferences and their purpose. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal 
and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Did you see that there? There's two different things going on in verse 29-30. Verse 29 is their purpose. What is the purpose of the assembled local church? The purpose of the assembled local church is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The purpose that they pray about in verse 29 is the proclamation of the word of God. Their praying and their concern is about one thing. God, bless us. Give us the ability to speak the word of God with boldness. That's our purpose as a local church. Our purpose as a local church is to proclaim the glories of him who called us out of darkness and into the excellent light. We have to gather around that purpose. In verse 30, they understand that certain gifts, certain passions, and even certain preferences have a role in supporting and adorning that proclamation. So they say in verse 29, Lord, bless us in our purpose to proclaim with boldness the word of God. And as you do that, you will stretch out your hand and do good works, signs and wonders, miracles, good works that adorn that gospel. So there's a clear hierarchy involved. What's our purpose? Our purpose is to proclaim the word of God. That's our purpose inwardly and outwardly, to proclaim the glories of him who called us out of darkness and into light. That's our purpose. And what about your preferences? And what about your passions? What, what about if you, you have a preference or a passion for caring for the poor? You have a preference or passion for adoption? You have a preference or passion for a certain doctrine? Those are wonderful as adornments for our purpose. But they are not our purpose. They are an adornment of our purpose. And if we don't come around to say our singular purpose here as an assembled body of believers is the proclamation of the glories of Jesus, then what we're going to wind up doing is we're just we're just never going to hit that prayerful unity that says we are about this one thing. It's not a diminishment in any respect of any adornment. It isn't. It simply is not. And it, it, it is not a diminishment of any particular calling that you have to adorn the gospel in a particular way. Some of you are very passionate about educating your children. Some of you are very passionate about caring for the poor. So on and so forth. All of these are excellent adornments so long as the body is unified in its particular purpose. And its particular purpose is the proclamation of the gospel. When they gathered to pray, <clears throat> they had to pray for the proclamation of the gospel because it was uniquely opposed and it always is uniquely opposed. Suppose we kind of reverse engineered this and asked, let's ask what the purpose of the local church is 
by examining the one activity that gets the most heat in the popular culture. Right? Let's, let's, let's consider, let's, let's see if we could figure out what our purpose is by what most upsets those living in darkness. Is, does adoption most upset those living in darkness? Well, there's certainly a piece of, of that. Does caring for the poor most rile up those with persecutional passions? No, not so much. We could go through a long list and say that there are a number of subordinate activities which do not cause people to get riled up, which do not stir persecution. And then you get to this one. It's like, what about telling sinners that they are hopelessly lost and headed to hell without Jesus? It's like, ding, 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 ding. It's like the Geiger counter, you know? It's like, okay, that's, whoa, 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 that's, that's getting, that's really hot. And so it has always been, and so it will always be. The unified purpose of the church also happens to be evidenced by the way the world responds when the church does that one thing. So our purpose is, as their purpose was, to speak the word with all boldness. And we pray for that in a unified voice while having confidence that, as verse 30 says, as we go to speak the word in all boldness, God will stretch out his hand through us and our particular giftings, our particular preferences, our particular passions. He will stretch out his hand through us to adorn and authenticate the gospel message with good works and lives that shine with the goodness of God. There's a place for both. But we've got to unify around that common purpose. So let me just shift now into discussing and introducing communion. The gospel is at the heart of this prayer in two ways. The gospel is at the heart of this prayer we just read in Acts 4 in two ways. First of all, we've seen that the heart of this prayer is the desire to proclaim the gospel. But there's something else, of course. This is a prayer that prays for the power to proclaim the gospel, but it is also a prayer that stands on the promises of the gospel. They are approaching God with boldness because they can be bold to the God of the universe because they are accepted through the gospel of Jesus. So think about it this way. These are people who are sure that they have gained entry into God's throne room, acceptance with God, adoption with God, favor from God. These are people who are praying in that assurance. They know that through Christ, they have received acceptance and adoption and favor from God. So they're praying on the gospel. They're standing on the gospel as they pray. And here's what we see happening here. Christ was the first one to do this. Jesus was the first one to do this. Jesus had all of that. Right? Uniquely, Jesus had unique favor with God. Jesus was perfect and beloved perfectly by the Father. And what did he do with that? 
Well, one thing he did was he prayed that other people would have it too. He prayed that other people would have the very same acceptance and adoption and status before God that he has. For instance, in John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. So one of the things, what does Jesus do with the acceptance he has, the approval he has in the eyes of the Father? Well, one of the things he does is he prays that other people will have it too. And then what's the second thing he does? He acts in such a way as to be the answer to his prayer. He says, I have remarkable favor and privilege with you, Father, and I want others to have that as well. And then he acts. He goes to the cross. So as to be the means by which God fulfills his prayer. So now when we're in Acts 4 and we see the believers standing in the approval and acceptance of God saying, we have, we are right with God. God, in Christ, God is pleased with us. They're just carrying along the same ancient rhythm they saw in the founder of their faith, Jesus. They say, we've got this incredible thing. We've got approval with God. Lord, help other people to have approval with God too. Help other people to gain this access and this entry. That's their common prayer. That's the unity in their prayer. And then what do they do after that? They act in such a way as to be a part of the answer to the very prayer they prayed. So this participation in the Lord's table, if you're a follower of Jesus, this participation is simply your acknowledgement that you're part of this very ancient rhythm, all started by Jesus, carried on for generations and generations of saints, in which people celebrated that they were right with God and reflexively prayed, militantly prayed, prayed in unity that other people would be able to experience that rightness too. And then out of that prayer, went into the world and proclaimed the word with boldness. This partaking of this table is a participation in the ancient rhythms of the gospel. I am right with God through Jesus. I want others to be right with God through Jesus. Lord, in this partaking of this table, help me, help me, help me to seek to be ambassadors of reconciliation, charging the darkness with the light. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord God, we are a people with a single purpose. And that purpose is to take up the acceptance and approval we have received from Jesus and proclaim it to those who do not have it. We were delivered out of darkness and into marvelous light. And now we are called to pray and preach back into that darkness. God bless us. Use these meager prayers and our meager witness to light up dark lives. 
We know, Lord, that the darkness will not tolerate the preaching of the gospel. They will vehemently oppose it. They will vehemently oppose our speaking of the word of grace with boldness. And this is the action they threaten. Sometimes they threaten it explicitly and sometimes they threaten it implicitly. But this is the action they wish to eliminate. So Lord God, we ask that you look on those threats. So that we can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. The author and founder of our faith. Lord God, we ask that you would unite us in the common purpose. And then subordinate all of the gifts and passions we have around the common purpose of being a people who proclaim your glories, who speak your word with boldness. We have confidence, Lord, that you will empower us to do just that. And Lord, that as you empower us to proclaim your word with boldness, you will adorn your gospel with befitting works that authenticate and demonstrate the truthfulness of the words we share. God, give us a heart, a spirit of unity, a reflexive tendency to turn to you, Lord, immediately in prayer together. And Lord, please, Lord, let us pray together. Let us join with you, identifying clearly what we are called to be, and pray that you make it so. We pray these things in the name of founder of this sweet sacred rhythm jesus we love you thank you amen